We are so glad that you joined us today. God wants to do so much in you and through you, and we would love to hear about it. Would you send us an email at shannon at hectorfirst.com to tell us your story? You can also go online and give to this ministry by going to hectorfirst.com and clicking the Give tab. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy the message. I should take my mask off before I talk. Uh, uh, well, I'm honored that Pastor Shannon, thank you guys. You can, I'm not going to make you play the whole time. That'd be kind of cool, though. <laughs> um, Pastor Shannon shared his pulpit with me. I love my church. I love my church family. I love my pastors. Um, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. Um, I just, I feel very, I told them when I got here, and I think I told you guys, I've only worked for two pastors in my lifetime. One was my dad, one was Pastor Shannon, and they're top two, my top two favorite pastors of all time. So I'm very honored, very humbled to be here. Um, I'm excited. Tonight, today, tonight, today, I'm used to speaking at night. So <laughs> I'm talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, I love this, re- this uh, story in the Bible uh, for many different reasons, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. But what, I'm going to jump a little bit from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, my favorite part about the Gospels is getting to kind of compare the different recounts and the stories that they tell. Um, and that's uh, if you want to get the full picture of what's happening in Jesus's life, you got to go to all all of the Gospels. And so that's kind of what we're going to do today. We're going to start at Matthew, we're going to go to Mark, and we're going to end at Luke. Uh, so if you would take your Bibles with me and turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start there. If you guys would stand with me, the honor of the reading of the word. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36, says, um, if I can find it, hold on. Give me a second. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And then he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away the second time and prayed, My father, if it is possible, Let this cup pass for me, unless I drink it. May your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Um, So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Now we're going to jump over to Mark chapter 14. Same story, just a little bit of different words. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32 says, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled, and said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. And going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass for him. Verse 36, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup for me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Verse 37, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. 
Simon, he said, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Last one, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39. It says, Jesus went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. He said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted with sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Father, I thank you for this opportunity we have to gather into your presence. God, there is nothing, there is nothing like your presence. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us from your word this morning. Your word is already anointed, but I pray that you would anoint my words. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to listen and be receptive to whatever it is that you want to teach us this morning. God, that you would just uh, uh, pierce through our hearts. God, that we would break down any walls. I come against any distractions, anything that may be hindering us from hearing from you. God, I come against those in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us in the service. This is all about you. In your name we pray. Amen. Max Lucado said, the Bible is the story of two gardens, Eden and Gethsemane. In the first, Adam took a fall. In the second, Jesus took a stand. In the first, God sought Adam. In the second, Jesus sought God. In, Adam, in Eden, Adam hid from God. In Gethsemane, Jesus emerged from the tomb. In Eden, Satan led Adam to a tree that led to his death. And from Gethsemane, Jesus went to a tree that led to our life. C.S. Lewis said, in Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup from pa would pass from him, and it did not. I, I love the, uh, uh, every time I think of the Garden of Gethsemane, I maybe not saying that right, excuse me, I'm going to get tongue-tied. Uh, I think of the song, I come to the garden alone. I love that song. I think of it every time. I don't really know, know why, maybe because it says garden. Uh, we did, when I was at my dad's church, we always did an Easter drama and that part of the story, when Jesus was praying, it always played that song. And so it's a very vivid image in my mind. But also this, this, uh, this story is very, appeals to all of your senses. You know, and Luke tells us that this was a normal spot for Jesus to pray. It says, as usual in verse 39, Jesus went off to pray. Uh, Gethsemane, Gethsemane means oil press. It's a place of oil press. So, uh, just really quick, this isn't really what I'm going to talk on really, but Jesus experienced a really pressing moment in the oil press, and he went as usual to pray. As followers of Christ, if we want to survive the pressing times, prayer has to be a usual thing. Prayer has to be something that they say of us, as usual, Mackenzie went off to pray. Usual, Pastor Shannon went off to pray. It has to be something that you come accustomed to if you want to survive the pressing times. Jesus faced a tremendous battle in the Garden of Gethsemane, a time of tremendous pressure and, and temptation, a time of pressing. There's intense imagery that we see in these recounts, in these, uh, this gospel story of what Jesus experienced in the garden, in the pressing. And it appeals to all your senses. You can almost uh, feel the sorrow and the weight on his shoulders as he talks about the, the death that's to come. You can see almost, it's very vivid, the drops of blood slipping down his head and his disciples off in the side sleeping. 
You can hear the, the cries of Jesus to his father, and I'm sure at some point you can hear the mob coming to take him away. I'm sure you feel the sweat dripping down when you see it. It's a very intense passage. It appeals to every part and all of our senses. Now, when you're looking at an eyewitness account of something, if there is a, uh, a crime that happens, police are going to go and get eyewitnesses, right? And they're not just going to talk to one person. They're going to talk to several people that saw it happen. And when they're getting eyewitness accounts, when something is repeated, it's considered vital information. It's considered something that's very important to that investigation. And we're read, when we're reading through the Gospels, which are the eyewitness accounts of Jesus on earth, and we're reading through uh, this scene in particular, there are several phrases that you could hear repeated over and over again. And I want to talk really quick, not really quick, kind of quick, we'll see. <laughs> that in these pressing moments, this moment where, where Jesus was facing the, the pressure, he utters a few phrases that can offer us some comfort and direction when we are in pressing moments. Number one, he's at a point of decision. He says, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Luke 22, 42. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. There's a lot of imagery of cups in the Bible. Uh, the first one being the cup of wrath. Not just in this scenario, but in Isaiah 51, chapter, verse 17. It says, awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem. You ha who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes them stagger. So we see this, this image here, this cup of wrath. And we see in Revelation 14, verse 10, says, He too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. The wrath of God is often described as being poured into a cup, waiting for its time to be taken. But there's another cup that we see. It's in Psalm 116 and a couple other places, verses 12 through 13. It says, how can I replay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call the name of the Lord. We see this heartbreakingly beautiful image of Jesus in agony at a point of decision. Two cups in front of him. One poisoned with the wrath from our sin, our decisions, our downfall. And I imagine in that moment the weight of every sin that would ever be committed passing and weighing on his shoulders as he comes face to face with the decision of us getting what we deserve or him taking what he doesn't deserve. The beauty of this moment is that Jesus willingly chose our wrath. He had a choice. He was fully God, but he was also fully man, which means he had free will. He had these two cups in front of him. It doesn't, it's in my mind, that's what I see, the cup of wrath of what we deserve and what he deserves. And him in that moment, with us in mind, willingly took the cup of wrath, what we deserve. In that moment, when he resolved to drink the cup of wrath that so rightfully should have been ours to drink, he purged the taste of destruction from our lips and began the process of pouring us a new cup of salvation. The battle we see waging in the pressing in Gethsemane was just the beginning of what we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Jesus took the cup that should have been ours, the destruction that should have been ours, the death that should have been ours, the, the penalty that should have been ours. He willingly took it and poured us a new cup of salvation. 
In that moment, when he decided to take that cup, it was the weight of our sin that caused him deep agony. But it was also the weight of our sin that compelled him to drink the cup. The same thing that was weighing on his shoulders was the very thing he was pressing towards. Because Jesus made the decision to drink the cup, we have the opportunity to make the decision to drink the cup of salvation. Because Jesus took what we deserve, we get to enter into relationship with Jesus. Number two, Jesus came to a point of determination. Luke twenty two forty two says, yet not my will, God, but yours be done. In the same breath of agony where Jesus wrestled with the weight of the decision, cup of wrath or not, we see the most sincere utterance of total obedience. Not my will, God, but yours be done. See, the irony of this to me, and it's not by accident, I don't think anything in the Bible is there by accident, is that it took place in a garden. 1 Corinthians 15 refers to Jesus as the second Adam. We see two different images or uh, pictures of an Adam in a garden in the Bible. The first Adam, the one that God created, the first man, in the garden said, not your will, God, but my will be done. He took his will, he wanted what he wanted, and brought the separation between God and man. He said, not your will, but mine be done. But in the second garden, the second Adam said, God, not my will, but yours be done. And he bridged that gap started the process of bridging that gap of the separation between God and man. Jesus' answer to the wrestling of decision was met with intense determination to not follow his wants, but to follow God's will. In the pressing, we come to a point of decision. Are we going to follow our will, what we want, what seems best in our eyes? Are we going to follow God's will? See, our will, my will is often comfortable. God's will is often confronting. What I want often seems comfortable to me. See, when I, I, there's not a doubt in my mind that when God called me to Hector, that was God's will. See, it, I was comfortable in Cersei. I didn't have to move. I didn't have to pay for groceries. I lived with my parents. I didn't have to drive as much. I didn't have as much responsibility. It was comfortable for me in Cersei. It was confronting for me to follow God's will. It confronted a lot of insecurity. It confronted a lot of fear. It confronted a lot of pride. See, God, my will is often comfortable. God's is confronting. It confronts insecurity, fear, lack of trust, willingness to be faithful in the small things. See, sometimes we say, God, I, I know that you've called me to preach. You've called me in ministry, but my job is it's comfortable. I know that I'm going to make this amount of money. God, I know that you're asking me to tithe faithfully. I know that you're asking me to give of my finances but my finances are really tight. God, I know that you want me to give up this addiction, but I don't know if I can. My will is comfortable because I get to stay where I am. God's will often calls us into something greater, so it's confronting. In the garden, Jesus sees this, that he has this moment of decision and determination of saying, you know what, God, I don't want to do this. My flesh does not want to do this. But I know if I do not do this, if I don't follow your will, they will have no opportunity to enter into relationship with you. It was confronting the flesh part of him. God's will is confronting. Our will is often comfortable. Number three, 
Jesus comes to a point of despondence. Matthew 26, 45 says, are you still sleeping? Jesus returned to the disciples and said, are you still sleeping? The imagery of the scene is almost heartbreaking when you think about Jesus in deep agony, awaiting his death, telling his closest friends that he is sorrowful to the point of death. And then they fall asleep. It's heartbreaking to think that he brought these these guys with him to fight with him in this battle, and they keep falling asleep. They're not alert. The plea that Jesus gives his disciples in the garden, wake up and pray so that you don't fall into temptation, is one I can still hear echoing in our ears today. Too often we spiritually fall asleep at the will and are not alert to the sneaking deception of the enemy. There's someone in the car. You're driving, and you get you're not alert, and you fall asleep, it's not just you you're putting in danger. If you have passengers in the car, you're putting them in danger. You're putting other people in the road in danger. When we fall asleep spiritually, whether we realize it or not, there are people following us. There are people watching us. Adults in this room, if we are not alert spiritually, there are future generations that are depending on us to teach them how to be alert spiritually that are in danger spiritually because we are not alert. The average person, listen to the statistic, the average person will spend more than 78,000 hours in front of a television over their lifetime. That's nine years. At the same time, if that person were to go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every week, from the time they were born to the time that they die, on average, that would only be 46,000, 43,680 hours or four years. If, if our spiritual life, if our, our relationship with God only exists inside the, inside the confines of these walls, we are not being alert spiritually. If we, don't, if we don't take our relationship outside of, outside of the doors of the church and we don't, we don't spend personal time with Jesus, we don't engage in prayer, there's no way our spiritual life will be able to survive. Prayer in the pressing has the potential to provide perfect peace. Isaiah 26.3 says, you being God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind stays on you because he trusts you. From the garden of pressing to now, there is a beckoning for us to wake up and to be alert so we can resist the enemy. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-9. through 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, fl- whew, words, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. See, we see this image of the enemy that he compares him to a lion. Now, when a lion is hunting, I just looked this up on, I don't remember what website it was, some safari, something, I don't know. When a lion is hunting, they do, they they stalk their prey, right? So it waits till the animal isn't alert, isn't paying attention, and then it attacks. The most successful hunts are on dark nights and dense cover against a single prey animal, often a young one. Once within range of the smaller prey, the lions use their paws to slap the back end of the animal at its legs, to knock it off of balance, and to drag it down. And when lions catch their prey, they put their paws around their neck and literally strangle the life out of them. 
See, I see the, this imagery when First Peter's talking about our enemy is like a lion, and it's seeking whom it may devour. And when you look at how a lion attacks, it seeks the vulnerable, those who are not watching, those who don't know better, the young ones who are out on their own. If we are not alert, we don't teach our family, if we don't teach our kids how to be alert to the attacks of the enemy. It's like sending a little baby gazelle out into to a, a, where lions live and making them fend for themselves. We have to be alert. We have to instill in our, our, our kids, the younger generation, how to be alert spiritually. Edwin Harvey said, life without prayer is a life without power. And Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer is our direct line to the authority we have been given to the Father, by the Father. Prayer is an act of boldly entering the throne room of grace. During the lifetime of Jesus, the holy temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish religious life. The temple was the place where animal sacrifices took place, were carried out. It was uh, the place of worship according to the law of Moses. Um, Hebrews 9 gives us this picture of kind of what the, the tabernacle looked like. It tells us that in the temple there was a veil that separated us from the holy of holies, the earthly dwelling place of God's presence from the rest of the temple where mere men dwelt. This, this signified that man was separated from God by sin. Only the high priest one time a year was permitted to pass beyond the veil into the holy of holies and to enter into God's presence. Uh, to, to offer it as sacrifice for the atonement, for the covering of sins. When Jesus was on the cross and the, the last breath that he breathed, he said, it is finished. And at that moment, the veil was torn. The tearing, tearing of the veil at that moment of Jesus' death dramatically symbolized that his sacrifice, the shedding of his own blood, was a sufficient atonement for our sins. It signified that now the way into the Holy of Holies was open for all people, for all times, both Jews and Gentiles, doesn't matter who. So we see this picture of something separating us from God, not able to enter into his presence. And then the veil is torn, and we have free access into the throne. We, we have free access into the uh, petitioning to God. Prayer is our invitation to boldly enter the throne room of grace. How could we not accept such an offer? We have the opportunity that... that Thousands before us, before the time of Jesus, didn't have the opportunity to enter into his presence daily, to commune with God, to walk with God, to communicate with God. And oftentimes, we neglect to do so. Maybe we don't have time. Maybe it's boring. Maybe you don't know how. Prayers are invitation to boldly enter the throne room. How could we not accept that offer? Number four, Jesus comes to a point of discord. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Mark 14, 38. In this moment, Jesus acknowledges the internal war being waged. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Galatians 5, 16, 18 says, So I'll walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify 
the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in constant conflict with each other. He calls his disciples to wake up and to pray because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We see this, this, this uh, in my mind. I'm a very visual, if you can't tell, very visual person. I see this kind of internal battle waging between the spirit man and the flesh, what the spirit wants and what the flesh wants. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, one of my favorite verses of all time. I memorized it in the King James. It's, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every thought taking it into captive into the obedience of Christ. We have the opportunity we have the, the, the right, the authority to take our thoughts captive, to choose what ruminates, is that a word we're going to go with, in our mind, what we chew on, what we marinate on. We have the opportunity to choose what replays over and over in our mind. We see this fight being waged between what the spirit wants and what our flesh wants. If I were to have, I'm not going to, Two dogs that I was going to make fight. That's awful, but we're going to go with it. And one dog, I fed meat every single day. I fed it good. I exercised it. It was re- had a really good diet. But the other dog, I hardly gave any. Didn't feed it very much. Maybe once a week. Gave it some meat. Didn't take it out much. And I, at the end of the year, I were to make those dogs fight. Which one would win? The one that I fed. What you feed grows. If you feed your flesh, your flesh is going to grow. You, f- you feed your flesh, it's not, your spirit man is not going to win that fight. But if you feed your spiritual life, if you, if you put to death the things of the flesh and you walk by the spirit, you won't gratify the things of the flesh. That's what it says in Galatians. If you don't feed your spiritual life, it's going to die. If you don't spend intentional time in the presence of God, you don't take the opportunity that we have to enter into the God's presence through prayer, your spiritual life isn't going to be able to survive. I'm not saying that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. But if a Christian is being like Christ, that's what Christian means, right? Little Jesuses, little Christ. And Jesus often took time to separate himself to spend time with the Father in prayer. He emphasized the importance of prayer. He emphasized the importance of Scripture. What does that tell us? As being little Jesuses, right? If we are to, our lives are to reflect that of Christ, should prayer not be important to us as well? Should reading the Bible not be important to us? If the Bible is our best defense, our own, in the, the armor of God, the only thing of defense that we have is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's not my words. It's not my good intentions, my good deeds, my going to churchness. It's the Word of God. And if we don't instill, if we don't know the word of God, if we don't read the word, we can't be on alert and be sober-minded and be ready to attack back when the enemy comes at us. Number five, last one. If the worship team, you guys don't mind, go ahead. Jesus comes to a point of despair. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. 
to the point of death. It's Mark chapter 14, and it says in Luke 22, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. In this moment, in my mind, there is no clearer picture of the humanity of Christ. There's no clearer picture of the, the sorrow he went through, the decision, how, how much it weighed on his shoulders. There, there's no clearer picture of the, the turmoil in his mind. Again, here the image is heartbreaking, and it's intense, and we can hear the despair and the agony in his voice when he's crying out to the Father, when he's talking to his friends. We can see it in the drops of blood that, that, that fall down his head. Luke, who is the, the physician of the group, he wrote that, that his sweat was like drops of blood. Now, we don't know for sure, but we, what uh, other doctors have concluded that this is a condition called hematidrosis. I don't know if I said that right, but just pretend I did. It's a medical condition that causes the capillaries that go to the sweat glands to rupture so that blood comes through the sweat. This happens when someone is under deep emotional and physical stress. We see Jesus literally wrestling with the weight of the world on his shoulders. And this is just the beginning of the trauma, physical and emotional, mental, spiritual, that Jesus experienced. Uh, we see that light, I don't want to jump too far ahead. We see later on the cross that Jesus is, is lying, like exposed, beaten. And he questions God almost. God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned in your back, turned your back on me? So we see how how deep, deeply sorrowful he is, how how like anguished and in turmoil. But at the same time, this is incredibly comforting to me. Because Hebrews chapter Four, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We see this intense battle in his mind, uh, the emotions. We see his answer to that. His response is prayer. But we see in that that the anguish doesn't necessarily go away just because he prayed. The turmoil doesn't necessarily go away just because he prayed. The agony doesn't necessarily go away just because he prayed. Actually, it says that he became more anguished. But what we do see is that he was strengthened and he was comforted as a result of that prayer. Some battles in the mind don't just go away with prayer. But what prayer does is it strengthens us in that fight. I am comforted to know that in my deepest despair, my Savior can empathize with me. When depression or anxiety or rejection or humiliation or betrayal is haunting my mind, I know that I can be strengthened by a God that knows the struggle that I face. Glenn L. Pace said, part of the reason the Savior suffered in Gethsemane was it so that he could have an infinite compassion for us as we experience our trials and our tribulations. Through his suffering in Gethsemane, the Savior became qualified to be the perfect judge. Not one of us will be able to approach him on the judgment day and say, you don't know what it was like. He knows the nature of our trials better than we do. 
for he descended below them all. There is such beauty in knowing that through any moment of decision or, or determination or despondence or discord or despair, we're not alone. Because we see that in the pressing, in those moments, Jesus went through those alongside us. When I look back at my life and every moment of intense grief, every moment of betrayal, every moment I feel like everyone turned their back on me, I can look back and I see the evidence. I see the evidence that I was being comforted by the one that took my place. Sometimes when we pray, God heals us instantly. Sometimes he sustains us through it. Both are equally as miraculous. Sometimes when we pray for healing, God touches us and it's incredible. That's great. Sometimes we pray for healing and it doesn't happen the way that we think, but he sustains us through it. In the gospel, when Jesus walked, there's a, a story of the, the pool of Bethesda. And it says that Jesus started stepping over people to get to one specific man. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't care about those people. Sometimes... Our healing, God's evidence in our life is that he walks with us through the trials. Sometimes it's that he holds our hand through the battle. Sometimes it's that he comforts us when someone passes away. Sometimes it's that he comforts us and, and, and lets us know that he is our joy when we're battling depression. He is our peace when we're battling anxiety. Sometimes he heals us instantly, but if he doesn't, he is still good. If he doesn't, that is still miraculous because we get to see God's hand at work. Isaiah 53 says he was bruised and he was crushed and he was chastised for our sin, for our grief, for our iniquities. I, I, when Jesus was in the garden, and he, had the, he said he was sorrowful to the point of death. I can just picture in my mind every iniquity that we would ever go through. Everything that would ever cause us pain, physically, emotionally, spiritually, the things that weighed us down. He took them from our shoulders and willingly placed them on his shoulders. He bore our griefs for our healing, for our redemption, for our forgiveness, so that we can be made whole, so that we could walk and commune with God. Not when we had it all put together, not when we knew all the answers, not when we were perfect and at our highest, but while we were still sinners. He didn't go to Gethsemane with the, the, the best of us in mind. He went with the worst of us in mind. He went for our lowest moments, our most sinful acts, our most hated moments. He went to Gethsemane, the pressing, because he knew that there would be a time when we would, we would walk through the pressing, that we would be pressed he knew we would need an example of obedience and a comforter in our despair. Because Jesus faced the pressing and he drank our cup. 
We are hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Because Jesus in the pressing gave us an example of what to do in our pressing moments. We are not perplexed. We are not crushed. We are not in despair. You guys would stand with me. God, I thank you. God, I thank you that you fight my battles for me. God, in my, in my lowest moment, in my lowest moment, you saw me and you thought I was worth it. God, when, I, when I've gone through despair and, and heartbreaking moments, you took that grief so I didn't have to be weighed down. I thank you, God, that you are speaking to our hearts. If you're in this room, if you're watching online, and you're at a point of decision, and you say, I, I want to drink from the cup of salvation. I've never accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I have before, but I've kind of fallen away. And I want to renew that today. I want to, I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Nobody looking around? You say, I'm at a point of determination. I, I, ha I know what God is asking me to do, but my will is comfortable. I don't want to follow my will. I want to be obedient. I need help to be obedient. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Is there anybody who need to be obedient? Thank you. You say, Mackenzie, I, I've kind of fallen asleep at the will spiritually. I need to wake up and be alert so that me and my family were not uh, falling prey to the attacks of the enemy. I, I want to be alert. I want to, to, to prioritize prayer in my life. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you. Lastly, you say, Mackenzie, I'm at a point of despair. There's a battle waging in my mind that, that I need to be comforted in the midst of. There's a battle waging that, that, that weighs me down. And I need to be strengthened and I need to be comforted in the midst of that battle. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Thank you. If you raised your hand and, or if you didn't, but you stood up anyway, someone who asked you today, if that is you, 